This evening, as we look at these, just overview these three chapters, chapter 17, what you have here is the prophet Elijah. We have him introduced to us, and he is confronting the king of Israel, Ahab, this idolatrous king who has brought in Baal worship to Israel, particularly through his wife Jezebel. And he confronts Ahab and tells him of God's judgment, that there will be a drought. And then you find that God provides for his prophet. He provides for him first by sending him to a a brook, and there he has water, and he is fed by ravens, and then later on he's fed by uh, a widow and provided for for three and a half years during this famine. But then in chapter 18, you find that God calls him out of his exile to come back and to confront Ahab again after three and a half years. And in chapter 18, of course, we have that great confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where Elijah calls down fire, and the Lord brings down that fire and burns up the sacrifice. And then you have the prophets of Baal being put to death. And then Elijah praying and asking the Lord, fervently praying for water to come back for for it to rain again. And the Lord brings that rain. And then in chapter 19, we find Elijah running for his life. Because Queen Jezebel is very upset about her prophets of Baal being slaughtered. And so, out of fear, Elijah runs But then God meets him and calls him back to the right path again. You know, Jared, I was thinking about the the call and the life and the ministry of Elijah, the prophet. The prophets in the Old Testament are often called the men of God or man of God. Elijah is called the man of God. We find that same title being given by Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Paul calls Timothy man of God. And there are some similarities, not just in the titles that the prophet Elijah is given that title and, and the minister is given that title, but they share several of the same responsibilities. And I see four that I want to point out tonight about the man of God, the minister of God, and his responsibilities. And these are the four. The first is that the man of God must be committed to the Word of God. The man of God must be committed to the Word of God. Second, the man of God must be committed to fervent prayer to God. Third, the man of God must be ready for opposition. And fourth, the man of God must be renewed by the gospel. So first of all, the man of God must be committed to the word of God. And that's clear in the life of Elijah. The life and ministry of Elijah is a life of courage, um, a life of commitment to God's Word. As he's introduced to us in chapter 17, verse 1, we find Elijah confronting Ahab. We read as the, of, of Elijah saying, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. We find that in Elijah, there was a man who was bound to the Word of God. In fact, in these chapters, you find this reoccurring phrase that says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. 
It seemed that Elijah didn't do anything unless he first heard the word of the Lord. And the man of God in the New Testament and the New Covenant also has to be driven and committed to the word of God. We are under solemn obligation not to give a message that we want to give, but to give a message that that God tells us to give. To give, in a sense, what we've been given. As we go to the scriptures, as we hear God's word, we take from God and we bring it to God's people. We're not the source of the message, we're just the channel of the message. Elijah was bound under solemn obligation to only give what he had received. And you know that's true for the the man of God in the new covenant, that we are called to discharge our ministry, and that is a ministry of the word of God. You think about what Paul says to Timothy. He says to him in in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You are called to go to God's word, to study God's word. You've gone through Bible college. You've gone through seminary that has taught you to exegete the scriptures, taught you the fine points of theology, how to put together a sermon, how to teach others. And you are called to take all those skills to go to God's word and to bring the message of God to God's people. And you must discharge that ministry. You have a solemn duty for this and to do this. And you have to feel the weight of this. You're not speaking for yourself. You're speaking for God. We must not misrepresent God and say things God has not said. We have to give the word of God to the people of God. And and I understand as you've gone through college and seminary, you've been well-trained of the centrality of the preaching and teaching of God's word to build up his church. But you must be committed to the word of God. And so that's the first thing. The man of God must be committed to the word of God. But second of all, and I think this is something that seminary has a hard time teaching us. And that is that the man of God must be committed to fervent prayer. That the man of God must be committed to fervent prayer. Elijah was a mighty man of prayer. Uh, We see this in the pages of 1 Kings, but if you turn in your Bible to James chapter 5, that's what you hear James presenting for us as, as James is finishing out his letter. And he's beginning to call the church to pray. He presents Elijah as an example of faithful praying. In, at the end of verse 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then James says, let me give you the example of Elijah the prophet. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah is given to us as as an example. And James doesn't say, well, Elijah just had this supernatural nature. No. He says, Elijah had a nature like ours. But the power in his ministry came through fervent prayer. That's where it came from. It came through fervent prayer. 
That's where the power was located. The means of God's power in his ministry was prayer. And I believe it's the same way with the man of God in the New Testament, in the New Covenant Church, that the source and the means of God's power in our ministry is prayer. In fact, again, in verse 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Uh, The NAS, I think, says the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. Well, think about that equation for a moment. You take a righteous man, you add a working and fervent prayer, and that equals great power. Great power in ministry. Again, I think of your seminary education, all the exegesis which you'll need and all the theology that you'll need, but is the element of prayer there? Yes, I know you're a man committed to the Word of God, but are you a man to, committed to fervent prayer, knowing that in that is the means of great power in ministry? And you see this, again, demonstrated in the life of Elijah if we go back to 1 Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 18, as in 1 Kings chapter 18, as Elijah goes back to confront Ahab after three and a half years, it's interesting that after three and a half years of seeing each other, the first thing that Ahab says in verse 17 is, "Is it you, you troubler of Israel?" I mean, you think about it, Elijah brought a very hard message, a very exclusive message. Baal is a false god. Yahweh alone. The Lord is the only true God. It's a very exclusive message. Well, we have a very exclusive message too. A very, very narrow message. And what did Jesus teach us? That broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many are on it. But narrow is the way that leads to life. And few find it. You know, you are called to preach a very exclusive gospel that there is only one God, the triune God of the Bible, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's only one way of salvation, and it's found in Jesus alone. And so you have to preach a very exclusive message, which won't make you a lot of friends at times. And then the call to repentance is so important in your ministry. You'll be calling men and women to repent, to turn from their sins. That was a strong part of Elijah's preaching. And in that, Ahab says, you're the troubler of Israel. And it's interesting what Elijah says back. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now assemble your prophets and we'll go to the Mount, to Mount Carmel and see who is really truly God. There'll be times in your ministry when you're seeking to be faithful to God's word, when you are preaching the truth and calling people to repent. And you'll sometimes feel like you are the troubler of the church. But rest assured, that's not what God thinks. You're not the troubler of the church. You're being faithful to God to bring his message to the people of God and and to call people to repentance, to turn to God. What we find is the, the prophets of Baal and Elijah gather up on the mountain, Mount Carmel, and, and they set up this contest. And Elijah says, okay, prophets, you call down fire. And then I'll later call down fire and we'll see who the true God is. 
And the prophets of Baal, they, they spend hours praying and nothing happens. And then Elijah, he steps up, puts the sacrifice, wets it, all of that. And then we read in verse 36 of Elijah's prayer, it says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. It's interesting to me the prayer of Elijah there. He prays that the people would see and know that the Lord is the only God. And that God would sovereignly turn these people's hearts back to him. And immediately that prayer is answered. Because in verse 38 we see, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Instantly. Elijah prays. This righteous man prays. And his prayer is answered immediately. What happens? God is seen, the Lord is seen to be the only God. And the people turn back to the Lord. And there we see they execute the prophets of Baal. And we see this mighty work done. But notice the fervency of of Elijah's prayer as he turns then after this happens in verses 41 through 46 he goes up the mountain by himself and he prays he's he's got a servant with him and notice the fervency of his prayer now he turns and says Lord bring back the rain in verse 42 we read and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he prays and he prays and he prays seven times waiting for the rain to come. But look at the fervency of his prayer. Even look at his posture. Now I've been struck by this. How fervent is our prayers? How fervent are we in our prayers? I'm sometimes convicted as I get into my office and I spend some time praying to the Lord and I have my cup of coffee and sometimes I put my feet up on my desk and I think, is this fervency? When I look here and I see this man of God putting his, bowing himself and putting his face between his knees, he's a desperate man. God bring rain. You alone can bring what the people need. If you desire power in your ministry, then give yourself to fervent and godly praying. Fervent prayer is hard work, though. It's hard work. In fact, uh, the German reformer Martin Luther said it's the hardest work. I mean, we think of Martin Luther so committed to preaching the Word of God, but he says it's actually the harder work is to be fervent in prayer. Luther stated this, it this way, he said, prayer is a difficult matter and hard, and hard work 
It is far more difficult than preaching the word or performing other official duties in the church. When we are preaching the word, we are more passive than active. God is speaking through us and our teaching is his work. This is the reason why it is also very rare. True preaching of the word of God is empowered by a prayer life. And Luther knew this. Luther gave himself the two hours every morning in prayer, knowing that if the word of God was going to be used, it was going to be used because God made it work and that he chose the means of prayer to bring power to the ministry. Unfortunately, I think a lot of our praying, and I'm guilty of this, as I've already said, is more like vacation praying than wartime praying. We're too comfortable in our prayers. We pray a few things, but we don't put our face between our knees and say, God, you must come through. I think of what Paul writes uh, to the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 4 when he calls upon that church to pray for his ministry because he knew that he needed people praying if his ministry was going to be effective. And we read in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, he says to the church, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He says, pray for us that God would open a door for the ministry. A little bit further on in that chapter, he mentions a man by the name of Epaphras. And this is in verse 12. And I want you to hear what he says about Epaphras. Epaphras really is an example of what we need to be in our prayer life. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That's what I talk about, what I'm talking about when I say wartime praying. Always struggling on your behalf in prayer. Agonizing. In fact, we get our word from this Greek verb here, agonizomai, agonizing in prayer. But is that what our prayers are like? The, the verb means to engage in a conflict. Is that what your prayers are like? Is that what my prayers are like? That we're engaging in a conflict, a fight, a struggle, a striving. That's what the word means. Truly, the greatest preachers that there have ever been have been great men of prayer. Whether you look at a man like Elijah or you look at church history, the greatest preachers, the greatest ministers have been men of fervent prayer. Spurgeon, Luther, Calvin, the list goes on and on and on. God has chosen to make the greatest preachers, the greatest ministers, the men of great, effective, and fervent praying. I read a few months ago a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Reformers, and he was talking about this very thing. He was talking about how these great Reformers were great preachers of God's Word, but they were great preachers because they were great prayers. And he states in one part this, he, he writes, 
Have you ever read about the prayer life of John Welsh, the son-in-law of John Knox? There was a man who spent nights in prayer. His wife would wake up at night and find him on his knees almost stone cold. What was he doing? He was praying for the townspeople to whom he was ministering, asking for power, asking for authority. These men, every one of them, were men of great prayerfulness. They spent hours of their lives in prayer, knowing that in and of themselves, though their doctrines were right and orthodox, they could do nothing. I like to hear the story of another of these men, Robert Bruce. We read that when he was praying with some ministers one day, he felt they were lifeless and dull. He cried to God that the Holy Spirit might come down upon them, but nothing seemed to be happening. Then as he began banging on the table, they were all conscious of God coming among them, and thereafter men spoke of Bruce as one who knocked down the Holy Ghost among them. Is not, and then Lloyd-Jones says, is not that the kind of man we need today? Where is the power? Where is the influence? Where is the authority? These reformers were only men like us. But they knew these things. They were men of prayer who lived in the presence of God and who knew they could do nothing without him. That's why they prayed. I believe the reason for lack of fervent praying is that we lack faith. We lack strong faith. Lack of fervent prayer reveals a lack of faith in Christ. Isn't that what Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the persistent widow? He says he told the parable, Luke says he told the parable to teach us that we must continue and persevere in prayer. And at the very end, he says, but when the Son of God returns, will he find faith on the earth? Well, how will he know if there's faith on the earth? If he finds men and women praying. Because if we really don't think, or if we really think that we can do it, then why ask God? But if we really don't believe that we can change people, if we can't convert people, if we can't do the work of the ministry, then, then we won't pray. If we think that we can do it, we won't. And so, Elijah was a man of fervent prayer, serious prayer, but godly prayer. You, you see this, his, his prayers were not for himself, they were for the people, they were for God's glory. And our praying must be godly, spiritual praying, praying after God's own heart. That means that we need to turn the Scriptures into prayer, take the Word and put it back into prayer, and bring it to God. Do you want there to be fire in your ministry? A fire of conviction that men and women would be convicted by the preaching and teaching of God's Word? Then pray. You want rain to fall and to, to renew and revive the people of God, then pray for it. Pray for it. Say, Lord, please bring the fire of conviction that men and women would turn away from their sins. Father, bring 
the reign of renewal because we need to be revived. We need renewal. You see, you could write a sermon or a lesson and it could be theologically astute, beautifully structured, but it lacks real power because it wasn't accompanied by fervent praying. Elijah was a man like us, but he fervently gave himself to prayer, faithfully gave himself to fervent prayer. And so, Jared, be a man committed to fervent prayer, to faith that God must do it. So be committed to the Word of God. Be committed to prayer. But third, understand this, that the man of God must also be ready for opposition because if you do the first two things, opposition will come. And we see that in the life of Elijah here in chapter 19 as as he has this great contest with the prophets of Baal and Queen Jezebel turns on him. And Queen Jezebel puts herself under oath, says, may the gods kill me if I don't see Elijah be put to death. You see, if you're a man like Elijah, if you're truly a a man of God, committed to the Word of God, committed to fervent praying, then, then you should expect you'll be opposed. That opposition will come. When the kingdom of darkness is threatened, and it won't be threatened by a man who's prayerless, But when the kingdom of darkness is threatened, it will become dedicated to the man of God's downfall. And oh, Satan has so many schemes. What we find here with Elijah, it's it's sad to see, but it shows us our own frailty and weakness, even the weakness of this great man of God that when he hears of of Jezebel's oath in verse 3 of chapter 19, it says, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and went as far south in Israel as he could get to put as much distance between him and the queen as he could get. A life of faith, and all of a sudden now, this man is fearful. And really, for the first time in the pages of Scripture, we find that Elijah is going somewhere when the Word of God has not told him to go somewhere. He's always been motivated by the Word of God. The Word of God says go, and he goes. But here he runs in fear. He's not operating in faith. But this is the same thing that can happen to us. When you've given yourself to the Word of God, when you've given yourself to prayer, and it seems like it didn't do anything, he's he's overwhelmed. You know, Satan has many schemes And he'll come after you in all sorts of ways. He'll come after your family. He'll come after your wife, your kids. He'll come after you in all sorts of ways. He'll come after you with pride. But one way that he'll come after you is through discouragement. And we find this here in Elijah. And we know that many men of God have suffered from depression and discouragement in ministry. You find here that Elijah, after running away, I mean, he is so down that he says to God, just kill me. I don't want to even live any longer. It's not that he's saying, I just want out of ministry. He says, I want to die. He recognized that that's the frailty of Elijah, and that's your frailty as well. That's all of our frailty. We are frail. We're dust. And so he says to the Lord, 
It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. The ministry can do that to you. And the reason for that, of course, is that we care for, our work is to care for souls. And our warfare is against the ancient enemy. It's heavy. You know, I've known, I've been out of seminary long enough now that I've watched a number of guys that I graduated with who are no longer in the ministry. And you'll give yourself some time outside of seminary and you'll start seeing, oh, he's no longer, he was pastoring this church no longer and now he's working here, working there, and he's out of ministry. Because it can do that to you. There were times early on in my own ministry when I was actually still at seminary and still and pastoring a little church in Kentucky that I sat on a Sunday evening in the back pew all by myself in a dark sanctuary and I said, I've had enough. I can't do this. But I kept repeating the same prayer, help me, Lord, help me. And he helped me. And you'll feel that way at times. You know, if, if Satan can't discourage you to quit, then he'll at least try to discourage you enough to make you compromise and to make you ineffective. You know, this ministry is just too hard to be committed to the Word of God, to be committed to fervent prayer. I just want a nice middle-class ministry. I'll teach and preach nice little messages. I'll marry people and bury people. I'll visit hospitals. I'll do all this work. I'll be nice so that everybody will get along with me. There'll be the temptation to do that, to compromise your conviction. Well, what do you do when you're depressed in ministry like this? Like Elijah. You think of Spurgeon and his fainting fits that he had in depression in ministry, just wanting to quit himself. What do you do when the work seems too much? What do you do when you've done all you feel like you've done everything you're supposed to do, and yet you have the queen still mad at you, wanting you dead. What do you do? Well, the last thing is this. The man of God must be renewed by the gospel. As Elijah lays there under this tree, we see the graciousness of God as an angel comes and touches him, and, and, and he feeds him, and and lets him sleep some more, and feeds him some more, and lets him sleep some more. But then notice what God does. It says, the angel of the Lord, and this is in verse 8, says that, actually at the end of verse 7, it's the angel of the Lord says, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. To Horeb, the Mount of God. What mountain is that? That's Mount Sinai. That's where Moses received the law. It's the place of revelation. It was the Mount of Revelation. God sends him to the Mount of Revelation where he would reveal himself to Elijah again. And it's interesting that he eats and then he goes 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that food. It's a lot like Moses as he's on the same mountain for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the law of God. God revealing his law to Moses. And now here this prophet is, is receiving a revelation from God on the same mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And God is teaching this man of God, again, something he already knew, 
The man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it is true for us that we have to go back to the Word of God and to feed ourselves upon the Word of God, not always to feed others through preaching and teaching and ministering to others, but to feed ourselves on the Word of God, that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. See, the greatest provision for Elijah was not that God fed him and gave him rest, those physical things, but that God gave him his word. The greatest provision is that God redirected him by his word. He turned him away from looking at men to looking at God, from fear to faith. And I love this in verse 9. Elijah is in this cave and he's on Mount Sinai. And it says, the word of the Lord came to him and said, now there we go. We finally have the word of the Lord coming to him again. He's back on track here. And the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? And look at his response in verse 10. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord. And he had been the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's still a discouraged man. I'm the only one who's been faithful, Lord. And in a sense, he has been the only one that's been faithful. So God says to him in verse 11, I want you to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And it says... As, as Elijah is, is pulled back in that cave, it says that the Lord passed by and it says a strong wind tore the mountain and broke it to pieces. But notice what it says. But the Lord was not in the wind. Three great phenomena happen. God sends wind that begins to tear the mountain apart. But it says, but God wasn't in that. And then there's the earthquake comes and shakes the mountain, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then fire comes, and it says the Lord wasn't in that either. Now, you would expect, if you're going to have an encounter with God, that it was going to be dramatic. It would be wind, it would be earthquake, it would be fire. That's how he would come. In fact, that's what Elijah thought to himself, is that that's what Mount Carmel was. Mount Carmel was something great and awesome, and it should have changed everybody. It should have gotten rid of Baal worship, but it hadn't. And it says now, these three great phenomena, and God wasn't in it. But then the fourth comes, and it says there was a low whisper, and in that, God had come. It says that he came out, and he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out to stand before God. And God again asks him the question, what are you doing here? And he says the exact same answer in verse 14. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. But contrast what Elijah says with what the Lord now says to him through this low whisper in verse 15 we read the Lord saying go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael 
to be king over Syria, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be a king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What does the Lord say? The Lord says, Elijah, the power, my power is not in man, but it is in the message. It's not in you, Elijah. It's not about your faithfulness. It's about my faithfulness. And it's not going to be through the spectacular that I take down Baal worship, but rather I'm going to raise up these three anointed men and they'll take it down. But these are my ways. These are my plans. Things are done my way. You see, God said, I have a sovereign plan to wipe out this idolatry and you need to trust me. You see, these three anointed men, these two kings, Hazael and Jehu, and then this prophet Elisha, they would be successful in getting rid of Baal worship. But they wouldn't ultimately, these anointed ones would not ultimately get rid of idolatry. For we know that the true anointed one, the Messiah, Christ, that he came. And it is, he didn't come with fire and wind, but he came in such an ordinary way. And he lived among us. And he lived a perfectly holy and righteous life. And, he, and then we, we read in John 12, he says, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. You see, it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that empowers. It's Christ, the anointed. It's he, it's he who dealt with sin once for all. And that's where we have to continually come back to the gospel for ourselves, not just to give it to others, but to hear the gospel for ourselves and to recognize that our sins are forgiven, that we have access to God, that we stand in right relationship to him, and that God is going to overcome, and that he has overcome in his Messiah, in his Christ. You see, we need a mount of revelation as well. And we have it at Mount Calvary. We need to hear the, the low whisper of the gospel when we are discouraged. We need to constantly refresh ourselves on the gospel because the gospel is the answer to sin. The gospel is the answer to idolatry, to eradicate it once and for all from our lives and from people's lives. We need the gospel. The gospel we preach to others is the gospel that empowers us. We must never tire from climbing up Mount Calvary and meditating upon the gospel, upon Christ crucified. And as we meditate upon what Christ has done for us, we'll find ourselves refreshed. And we'll find ourselves arriving at another mountain, Mount Sinai. I mean, sorry, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And there we pray because we have access to the throne of grace through that gospel. So never tire from climbing Mount Calvary to meditate upon the cross and to arrive at Mount Zion to pray and to seek his face. 
Mr. Jared, the man of God must be committed to the word of God, committed to fervent prayer, be ready for opposition, be renewed by the gospel. And I think as I close here of these words by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and these were given to me at my ordination years ago. It's one of the greatest description of New Covenant ministry, and I hope that you'll go back to 2 Corinthians 4 and remind yourself of these truths. But let me just read these to you. It's a great description, as I said, of the New Covenant ministry. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also, may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Jerry, don't lose heart, but recognize that we have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. And the affliction we go through now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So set your eyes on Christ and look to things unseen. Let's pray.